crouched as he was with his back to the view, he saw very little of the coastline. The yellow plains of the east, which gave way by subtle incline to greener heights, and then the mountains, blue with distance above them. Further north, the verdant fjords, hushed by still water. In the west, the braided streams that tarnished when they met the beaches and carved fissures in the sand. When the godspeed rounded the northern spit and began her passage southward, the weather glass began to fall. Had Moody not been so ill and wretched, he might have felt afraid and made his vows. Drowning, the boys on the docks had told him, was the West Coast disease, and whether he could call himself a lucky man was a question that would be settled long before he reached the goldfields, and long before he first knelt down to touch the edge of his dish to the stones. There were as many lost as landed. The master of his vessel, Captain Carver was his name, had seen so many lubbers washed to their deaths from his station on the quarter-deck that the whole ship might properly be called a graveside. This last spoken with a hushed solemnity and wide eyes. The storm was borne on greenish winds. It began as a coppery taste in the back of one's mouth, a metallic ache that amplified as the clouds darkened and advanced, and when it struck, it was with the flat hand of a senseless fury. The seething deck, the strange whip of light and shadows cast by the sails that snapped and strained above it, the palpable fear of the sailors as they fought to hold the bark on her course, it was the stuff of nightmare. And Moody had the nightmarish sense, as the vessel drew closer and closer to the goldfields, that she had somehow willed the infernal storm upon herself. Walter Moody was not superstitious, though he derived great enjoyment from the superstitions of others, and he was not easily deceived by impression, though he took great care in designing his own. This owed less to his intelligence, however, than to his experience, which, prior to his departure for New Zealand, could be termed neither broad nor varied in its character. In his life so far he had known only the kind of doubt that is calculated and secure. He had known only suspicion, cynicism, probability— Never the fearful unravelling that comes when one ceases to trust in one's own trusting power. Never the dread panic that follows this unravelling. Never the dull void that follows last of all. Of these latter classes of uncertainty he had remained, until recently at least, happily unconscious. His imagination did not naturally stray to the fanciful, and he rarely theorised except with a practical purpose in mind. His own mortality held only an intellectual fascination for him, a dry luster. And having no religion, he did not believe in ghosts. The full account of what transpired during this last leg of the voyage is Moody's own, and must be left to him. We think it sufficient to say at this juncture that there were eight passengers aboard the Godspeed when she pulled out of the harbour at Dunedin, and by the time the bark landed on the coast, there were nine. The ninth was not a baby born in transit, nor was he a stowaway, nor did the ship's lookout spot him adrift in the water clinging to some scrap of wreckage and give the shout to draw him in. But to say this is to rob Walter Moody of his own tale, and unfairly, for he was still unable to recall the apparition wholly to his own mind, much less to form a narrative for the pleasures of a third. In Hokitika it had been raining for two weeks without reprieve. 
Moody's first glimpse of the township was of a shifting smear that advanced and retreated as the mist blew back and forth. There was only a narrow corridor of flat land between the coastline and the sudden Alps, battered by the endless surf that turned to smoke on the sand. It seemed still flatter and more contained by virtue of the cloud that sheared the mountains low on their flanks and formed a grey ceiling over the huddled roofs of the town. The port was located to the south, tucked into the crooked mouth of a river rich in gold, which became a lather where it met the salt edge of the sea. Here at the coast it was brown and barren, but upriver the water was cool and white and said to gleam. The river mouth itself was calm, a lakelet thick with masts and the fat stacks of steamers waiting for a clearer day. They knew better than to risk the bar that lay concealed beneath the water and shifted with each tide. The enormous number of vessels that had foundered on the bar were scattered as unhappy testament to the hazard below. There were thirty-some wrecks in total, and several were very new. Their splintered hulks wrought a strange barricade that seemed dismally to fortify the township against the open sea. The bark's captain dared not bring the ship to port until the weather improved, and instead signalled for a lighter to convey the passengers over the rolling breakers to the sand. The lighter was crewed by six, grim cairns to a man, who stared and did not speak as the passengers were lowered by chair down the heaving flank of the godspeed. It was awful to crouch in the tiny boat and look up through the impossible rigging of the ship above. She cast a dark shadow as she rolled, and when at last the line was struck and they pulled away into open water, Moody felt the lightness on his skin. The other passengers were merry. They exclaimed about the weather and how splendid it had been to come through a storm. They wondered about each shipwreck that they passed, sounding out the names. They spoke of the fields and the fortunes they would find there. Their cheer was hateful. A woman pressed a phial of sal volatile into the bone of Moody's hip. Take it quiet, so the others don't come wanting. But he pushed her hand away. She had not seen what he had seen. The downpour seemed to intensify as the lighter neared the shore. The spray from the breakers brought such a great quantity of seawater over the gunwales that Moody was obliged to assist the crew in bailing the boat, using a leather pail thrust wordlessly upon him by a man who was missing every tooth except his rearmost molars. Moody did not even have the spirit to flinch. They were carried over the bar and into the calm of the river mouth on a white-capped wave. He did not shut his eyes. When the lighter reached her mooring, he was the first out of the boat, drenched to the skin and so giddy he stumbled on the ladder, causing the boat to lurch wildly away from him. Like a man pursued, he staggered, half-limping, down the wharf to solid ground. When he turned back, he could only just distinguish the fragile lighter bucking against her mooring at the end of the wharf. The bark herself had long since vanished into the mist, which hung in plates of clouded glass, obscuring the wrecked ships the steamers in the roadstead, and the open sea beyond. Moody reeled on his feet. He was dimly aware of the crew handing bags and valises out of the boat, the other passengers running about, the porters and stevedores shouting their instructions through the rain. The scene was veiled to him, the figures gauzed, as if the journey and everything pertaining to it had been claimed already by the grey fog of his uncertain mind as if his memory, recoiling upon itself, 
had met its obverse, the power of forgetting, 